God has a strange economy. It doesn't match our economy. Or perhaps a strange mathematics. Because it seems like frequently in God's economy, in God's mathematics, less is actually more. It is in this passage. And as a matter of fact, it is in a lot of places, even in the New Testament. You get the theme of less is more in God's economy throughout the Scripture. You remember statements from Jesus, like if you want to be great, you've got to be a servant to all. If you want to be great, you've got to be nothing. Or in Paul's words, if you want to have strength, you've got to experience desperate weakness because in your weakness, God's strength is made evident. Or perhaps this passage, you've heard this one before, haven't you? This is a, a demonstration of the strange economics of God. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. God's economy is strange. He throws it at us routinely in the words of Scripture, and most often by way of story, at least in the Old Testament. Because this is a story that plays out the words of Paul and Jesus over and over again. This is a story of a man who didn't have very many particles of faith. He didn't have much in his bag that was necessary or stones to throw at a giant. But God called him anyway. You heard the story or a portion of the story of Gideon read. And in Gideon's story, this notion that less is more is played out. And I want to illustrate it with three things in the story. The first illustration of less is more is God chooses someone who apparently has uncertain or maybe even weak faith to accomplish his will. Really, don't you think there might have been somebody else in Israel? There were a lot of people there in that day. Who had had stronger faith than Gideon? I can't imagine somebody didn't have more strength of character and faith than Gideon did. But God chose Gideon. He chose Gideon, apparently, to reemphasize this rule of faith. The less is more. As a matter of fact, Gideon not only seems to have a lack of faith, he, he appears to begin with cynicism. Or at least, that's how I read it. 
God appears to him. It's an epiphany. It's out of nowhere. It's angelic. It's glorious. And he says, mighty warrior, God is with you. Go do what I call you to do, namely rescue your people from the Midianites. And Gideon doesn't just say, as Moses say, said, you've got the wrong guy. He says something else. He says, wait a minute, God. If you're with us, why is everything going backwards? This is not only a person who lacks faith, but someone who has the audacity to speak to God and say, if you really mean what you say, there would be a demonstration of it already. And then maybe I'd have the courage to move. Gideon is honest, if nothing else. And his faith seems to be, well, a bit weak. It's not as though he didn't have strong conviction. We see that played out in his life. It's not as though he wasn't willing to take on a mighty army. We see that coming out as well. Strong conviction is not necessarily incompatible with weak faith. You know that, right? Or let me put it in personal terms. Any number of days, my conviction in the strength and the power and the beauty of God is really deep and really strong, and right next to it, that strength of conviction exists a tiny little weak faith. I don't know how that's true, but it is true. And it seems like it's true in the life of Gideon. He ends up showing his courage and his strength, but his faith really is kind of weak. I mean, the narrative that you just heard read, right? He's tentative. He's uncertain. And he says, God, you got to show me a sign. And God comes to him with a pretty big sign, throws the fire down on the altar. There we are, Gideon. I'm here. Gideon is robust in his faith at this point. At least it seems so. And he moves in the direction of what God is calling him to do. And then God says, it's time to go out and fight the Midianites. And he says to him, God, do you think maybe once more? The fire out of nowhere, not quite enough. That was yesterday. This is today. Can you give me another sign? And God relinquishes, gives in to Gideon's weak, weak faith, and he says, certainly, I'll do that for you, Gideon. But you know what's even more bizarre? God not only relinquishes and gives Gideon another sign, God caves into Gideon's plan, it sounds audacious, but it looks like that. Gideon says, I need another sign, and here's what the sign's going to be. God, I'm going to tell you what to do. Now, I know sometimes we talk about a fleece. You know, some of you have heard this story about a fleece, and we wonder whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing. And some of you may have used it, and others of you may wonder whether or not you ought to use it. What we happen to know from the record is that this fleece thing that I'm about to tell the story of was a very, very common practice among pagan religions. Real common. As a matter of fact, so common that it wouldn't have been as common in the life of people who serve Yahweh. So Gideon, in effect, takes a rather pagan approach to a situation where he's lacking faith, and he says, God, here's what I want you to do. I want to go to bed tonight, and I want to set out a fleece like a big cotton ball. And I want to put it on the floor, the threshing floor. And I want you to show up this way. I want you to make it wet and all around it dry. I want the dew only to hit the fleece. 
And God says, okay, weak faith, I'll do that. (laughs) He does it. We've had fire from heaven burning up an altar. Now we've had a fleece that's got wetness from dew on it and everything else dry around it. And Gideon says, okay, I'm ready to go. No, he doesn't. He says, I need another one. Can we reverse the order, God? Make the ground wet and the fleece dry. If you do that, then I'll know. I'm glad I'm not God because I would have pulled the plug on this plan at this point. This guy's got no faith. I'm out of here. There's got to be somebody better in Israel. But God stays with him. He says, I'll do it again. He does it again. Finally, Gideon, after fire and two fleece and God repeating five different times in the text, I will be with you. Gideon says, all right, I'm ready to go. This is a man of weak faith. You you know what's wonderful about this? It's as though God understands how weak his faith is. And so the text says, after all this, God clothes Gideon with his spirit. It's not said of everybody else in the Bible. Not every judge. Not He just clothes them with his spirit. It's like this guy is so weak and so vulnerable. I've got to put myself all around him. He's got to be living in a spirit suit. And then I can do it. So he clothes him with his spirit. And then Gideon's ready. So God's economy is less is more. Because you have just a little bit of faith. And God decides to target the tiny faith and do a big thing. Second illustration in Gideon's life of less being more. Well, it's this. God says, less is more this way. You've got an army of a certain size, Gideon. I want a smaller number in that army. And this is the way I want you to reduce the number. I want you to go to all the people who are in the army, and I want to say, any of you feel butterflies in your stomach? Who wouldn't? Oh, by the way, the Midianites probably had 135,000 men. According to the text, Israel's got 32,000. Who wouldn't be afraid? 22,000 of them say, yeah, I'm quaking in my boots. And Gideon says, well, go home then. He's left with 10,000 people. Why? Apparently, because God wants to make a point. It's not about numbers, it's about commitment. I don't need 22,000 men or 32,000 men or even a number that matches the Midianites like 135,000 men if they're not committed. I want just a small number of men who are committed. 10,000 of the 32,000 stay. Commitment, according to the story, is absolutely essential. Numbers are not. As a matter of fact, you, you could see in this story this message. People who are uncommitted, they diminish the possibility of success. God says, if you're not in this thing, I don't want you spreading the virus 
of fear. I want you to be committed. So we see this illustration, second illustration, of less being more. God removes the uncommitted. Numbers don't matter. It's commitment that matters. The third illustration of less being more um, is this. God reduces the level of fighting men to absolute absurdity. I, I, I'm making a bold statement. I'm not just saying it looked like absurdity. I'm saying it was absurd. By all accounts, absolutely absurd. Because Gideon is told by God, you still have too many men. First statement of absurdity, 10,000 against 135,000. Second statement, I want you to take them down to the brook. And when they go down to the brook, I want you to weed them out. Weed them out. Here's how I want you to do it. Don't tell them anything. Don't ask about commitment this time. I'll just take care of this one. Take them down to the brook and say, get a drink. So they go down to the brook, and he says, I want you to eliminate everyone who stoops and places their mouth into the stream to take a drink. And I want you to keep only the ones who on one knee dip out the water in the cup of their hand. Only 300 men out of 10,000 dip from the stream. Now God's God's got the number down to the level of absurdity. Now he's got it down to the level of the foolishness of the cross. Now it doesn't look like anything according to human wisdom. And now he's ready. Only 300, Gideon. And here's what I want you to do with them. A further absurdity. I want you to take a pot and a torch and I want you to go up to the top of the hill surrounding the Midianite camp and when you get up at the top of the hill at night I want you to give them a signal I want you to shout out to them it's time now and what I want you to do I want you to have all those men take those pots and crash them on the ground break them into smithereens and then hold up a torch and scream the sword of the Lord and Gideon What kind of battle plan is that? That's not a battle plan. It's an announcement. There's 300 of us stupid people with torches up here on the hill coming after you. Man, wouldn't they be scared? Are you kidding me? He reduces the number to absurdity, and then he gives him a battle plan that is absolutely absurd. And when they follow God... The absurdity turns into gigantic victory. God throws 135,000 men into complete chaos and they start killing one another. Now what do you think, Gideon? You see what I did? I took everything you had and I reduced it to nothing. Even a battle plan. Nothing so that there would be only one storyline. I conquered your enemies. Less is more. He wants to remind Israel he's the ultimate deliverer. I think he wants to remind us that less is more.
What does that mean for us? Well, let, let me make three suggestions. The first one is this. Do you have a small, itty-bitty, tiny little faith? Well, then maybe God's calling. He does that, the story says. All he needs is an itty-bitty, tiny little faith. Or as Jesus put it, the faith of a grain, a little tiny seed called a mustard seed. That's all I need because I'm in charge. Second question. Is the job, the calling, is it bigger than you are? Does it look like a gigantic mountain? Well, maybe God's calling. He often does that. He often waits until the mountain is so large it eclipses the sun. When the job is so big it's humanly impossible. When what he calls you to seems like he's calling you to your death. That's often when God calls. Are you listening? When you look at what God's calling you to, does it look like to you, just like it did to Gideon? There's got to be somebody else better prepared for this. I don't have what it takes. Well, maybe then God's calling. Because he does that. You know, there's just a really simple message in this text that we could miss if we don't reduce it to the simple message. It's this. God strips us down so that he can prepare us to be used by him. That's the message. It's throughout the Bible, and it's at the center of the story. So what I want to do is different today. I usually stand up here and end with a beautiful prayer. No, I usually pray. <laughs> and I am going to pray, but it's not about me trying to come up with the right words for a prayer. This time it's about you. Because what I want to do is, uh, at the end of this, to have a protracted, that means long, long period of silence. Now, I know that's uncomfortable for a lot of us, especially in a large group when somebody feels like they don't want to make a noise or cough or sneeze. Forget it. Don't worry about it. Just be silent. And I'm going to go down there and sit down with you, and I don't know how long I'm going to sit there. I'm just going to sit there until I feel like I need to get up. And I'll conclude with prayer. But in the meantime, I want us to ask at least 
these questions, if not more. First question, God, what are you trying to do in my life? Wherever you are, whatever your circumstances, whatever your loss, what are you trying to do in my life? Can you give me some insight? Second, what are you trying to teach me in my life? And the third question, it's sort of a question and a promise together. Lord, what do I need to surrender in order to follow you? You know, surrender is not always about giving up bad things. Sometimes it's about giving up good things. These kind of moments, they always make me a little nervous. Um, because I can't control them. And because sometimes people just go nuts and come up with all kinds of wild and crazy ideas. But you know what? I don't care. Not in this moment. I'm just completely releasing it. And I want you to release it to God. Let God speak, and then we'll pray. Lord, these uh, last few moments, have been sacred moments. We're not good at being silent. We're not very good at listening. And even in the silence, some may have entered into it and exited it with the same questions. But we pray, Lord, that even though a significant revelation might not have been theirs. It will be the beginning of you communicating uh, your truth and your love to them. And we pray, Lord, that all of us will at least make a commitment, even if we didn't get some clear answer, to surrender ourselves to you. That in the words of uh, that old hymn, um, we will say all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence, daily live. All to Jesus I surrender, humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures, all forsaken, take me Jesus, take me now. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior, holy thine. May thy Holy Spirit fill me. May I know thy power divine. All to Jesus I surrender. 
Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power. Let thy blessing fall on me. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Amen.